Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. All right, and we are live. I am here with uh, my younger brother, Adam, who was an absolute master of helping me get around the world uh, via keeping an eye on the weather. How's it going, Adam? Pretty good. Uh, I feel it's very complimentary, but thank you. Thank you. Is this your first podcast ever? Uh, This is, yes. All right. Well, it's going to go great. You're already doing fantastic. Well, <laughs> good, good to know. Okay, a veteran. Yeah, hey, there we go. Well, um, so do you want to just give us a little breakdown on uh, some of your, what you do sailing-wise and uh, how you're in the industry and everything? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I've kind of worked my way through most of the, the kind of areas of, of kind of all things sailing. Um, I used to teach with uh, with Jerome here. Um uh, but in doing that, we always kind of did most of the maintenance for our fleets, and so that bleeds into doing fiberglass work and, and getting into the more technical stuff, doing paint jobs and refits. Uh, I then went into kind of professional crewing, and I was the, the mate on a Swan 100 for about three years, and so that definitely got into a lot of the technical aspects, doing electronics and things. Uh, and then I went into working at a full-service yard, and so then full gutted refits, redoing electrical systems, electronics and instrument packages, but then also rigging and, um, but still doing fiberglass and stuff on the side. So kind of a little bit of everything from teaching to running to fixing. So just about anything you need on a boat, I I have some experience in. A jack of all trades. A little bit, yeah. That's right. It became kind of a special projects like, okay, that's new. Hey, Adam, what do you think of that? (laughs) <laughs> we got any ideas and and then i just run with it nice very nice well and i i remember you know the summer before i took off on my trip back in 2017 you came out for about a week and helped me bed a whole bunch of stuff on the boat make sure everything was watertight and i don't know what else we were doing i think we were plugging in the new tangs for the whisker stays and the bob stays and and stuff like that on the boat so that involved you know drilling holes through the hull and making sure everything was perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I do remember you weren't too concerned about cleaning up, but I wanted to make sure it looked pretty as well. So, well, and, and that's a nice yeah. final product. That's the mark of a uh, a real. I, I don't even know what the perfect word would I'm be. Gonna go with craftsman. Craftsman. Yes, that's that sounds great. I mean, because it, it is. You know, I'm more on the side of well, that looks okay, but it's 100 percent functional, and you kind of delve into both areas which nothing but respect for that i i i for some reason just can't find the time to do it or uh, or the need so sparrow sparrow could use your touch for sure <laughs> i like to make it look pretty i mean i mean coming from the bigger boats and stuff like that you got to make sure it looks factory fresh as much as you possibly can well and that's that's something you indeed do i mean anything you touched on the boat basically um I, I would say it looks professional, but it is professional, and that that made a huge difference for me. I mean, you know, all that stuff that we did on the boat all those years ago is still functioning perfectly. It's not leaking any of that stuff. So I, I'm sure I would have heard about it by now. No, I would have never, never. Well, I just love the. <laughs> I, I'm going to do a quick side note for any listeners out there that don't do 
too much in terms of betting hardware and things like that. When we were uh, doing some of the important punch list stuff, we found the transducer through hull for his depth meter was uh, bedded with silicone, which generally and, don't and want it, to... it was leaking before that. Yes. I, I had to, uh, on one trip where I was doing, I think it was a month at sea out around the Atlantic before I went around the world, I... Oh, I don't know. It was maybe two weeks into it when it started leaking, you know, enough for me to get a little concerned. And uh, I actually ended up doing a trick from Moticier where I took a, a, well, I first had to make a bag full of sawdust by just taking a saw and cutting up a bunch of wood and then took that down below underneath the water and then just opened the bag and spread it around. And it actually sucked the sawdust up and it held for the rest of the time while I was out at sea. Oh, nice. Yeah. The old tricks. I'm telling you, those old sailors, man, they they really know their stuff. I mean, he had to do it on a few of his his first two boats were wooden, and they leaked like crazy. And so he would – the other one is if you can find the hole in the bilge, like where the water's coming from, you tap a nail through that so that when you're trying to find it, when you're under the water and you obviously don't have a lot of time – you can find it really quickly because there's a nail head sticking out. <laughs> Drag your hand along the bottom until you slice open. Yeah, and go, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Fixing stuff under the waterline when you're out at sea is never never a fun situation. But uh, I, I think probably the most epic story of those is when Knox Johnson was was basically trying to caulk his boat. You know, the the beams and stuff were sort of letting go and opening, and he he swam underneath with. He was using a cotton, and then I think he had to go down there with a line of like flat copper tape and then nail all that in. And I think he had to like shoot a shark beforehand. It was just a, oh, in his book, uh, a world of my own. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. He's, he's definitely one of my personal heroes. That's for sure. Well, that's, I've, I've always heard, and they, they put it in their literature that when you do 5200, which is the appropriate for through hauls. That you can do it while it's in the water. I've never tried, but I've always been kind of curious about that. You could, while the boat's still in the water, you can technically, using that, you can swap it out. Right, and right. Seal it properly. Yeah, I would. I would worry about it actually adhering to whatever I was putting it on, because I know fifty two hundred will it'll cure in water. Because I I've done it and then had it rain or something like that. Yeah. And and then it, it actually seems to cure almost a little bit faster. But when you say, you know, 5200 is is what's appropriate for through hauls under the waterline, what would you what's the difference basically between 5200, 4000, um those sort of different sealants? Uh well, uh, you end up with strength. Um I'm not a 3M engineer, but uh, strength is a big one. Uh, like if anybody's tried to take out something bonded with 5200, uh, it's not fun. Yeah, it's a pain. Uh, you'll get. I, I know I've made the mistake of putting deck hardware in with it before, and it'll it'll pull the gel coat up in places as opposed to actually letting go of the fitting. Um, a big one when it comes to you mentioned 4000, and they also have 3000, which is a lighter duty. Um, once you get into the three and four thousand as opposed to having the 200 at the end of it uh, those are all uv stable so if you've got deck fittings and stuff like that they hold it better to the sunlight and they don't yellow as much so that's four thousand yeah four thousand oh yeah. okay okay uh, but other than that i think it's just bond strength is the key thing so like three thousand is for um, no load deck fittings um, 
So like Durade boxes, things like that, not actual deck hardware. Anything you're trying to bed and make sure it's not leaking. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then 4000 is just the UV stable version of 4200. Um, so it's about the same strength, but it just holds up to the sun better. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. And then 5200 is just the, I never want this to move. Right, right, okay. So when I'm doing, you know, when I was caulking the um, the cap rail on Sparrow, which was leaking so poorly, because uh, it had, you know, 40-year-old caulk in it, I want to say initially I'd use 5200, and that definitely yellowed. Yep. And then I ended up going over that again with... I think 4,000, and that stayed pure white, and it actually finally stopped those leaks, believe it or not. Yeah, and 4,000 would be the right way to go because it's something like the cap rail, just the 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 flexing of the boat alone makes it a, a pseudo-load-bearing kind of piece. So it's it's not like a like a jib track or something where it's dealing with really high loads, but the whole boat moves. And so it's not just a cosmetic piece that's popped on there. Right, right, exactly. Even a West Sail 32, I mean, as as much of an eggshell as it is, as far as structurally it's it's impossibly strong, it still yeah. is, I'm sure, going to flex a little bit when it's, when it's put under some serious pressure. When a big wave decides to smack into your broadside, it, uh, it's a pretty exciting thing to happen. <laughs> That's because I've seen the video of you down below when that happened, and it sounds like a gunshot. And from the look on your face, it was quite loud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, quite an experience, that's for sure. Well, one of the one of the big things I wanted to do this podcast about was your your help with with weather routing, and you know, you've basically been sort of doing that for me and helping me with it on every voyage, not just the big round the world trip and all that. But even just my trips from Maine to the Caribbean or down to South Carolina and stuff. And, you know, it's it is it's it's a pretty great feeling to have somebody land base that can look at the stuff in real time on multiple sites. What uh, what sites do you use? What What's your go to? You know, say I, I text you from the sea and I say, hey, you know, lost my communications. What's going on? Uh, my go to kind of all purpose non-emergency is uh, is windy.com uh, they have for one a really easy to use interface uh, and it's also it's very well put together so it's it it's it just is a very attractive interface the graphics and stuff like that are really nice to look at oh i agree um, with that yeah it is it's um it's probably the most eye-catching of all of them i think Oh, definitely. And and you can switch it around, so you do get some of the more bare bones. I think you put up, like, vector flags for wind and stuff like that. But then at the same time, you have this beautiful color gradient kind of a setup to give you, I don't know, it just seems to give you a little bit more kind of a intuition or feel of what you're looking at, as opposed to just, like, a graph kind of a setup. Right, right. Well, and I, I think, you know, most of these... Um, well, I guess all all of these weather sites, whether it be windy or passage weather or whatever, they're all getting their information from NOAA. Uh, NOAA and then the European equivalent. And the so European. you could you could switch between models, but it's pretty much Europe and NOAA are the two kind of main ones. Right. Well, and one of the things that I didn't realize about these initially was that these are just computer-generated models. They don't have anybody actually looking at it and saying yeah well i think this might happen 
So it's basically a computer just doing it. There's no person signing off and saying, you know, with my 40 years of experience, I think this is actually not going to happen here. It's going to go this way. And yeah. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. So that's I mean, same thing, I believe, happens when it comes to uh, the, the weatherman. When you watch the, the weather channel or the weather on the news, is the bulk of the information is all coming from modeling. And then the actual meteorologist, he's, he's just the interpreter. And how far they want to take it seems to be kind of becoming less and less. Like if you watch a small town local weather, which we still get around here, they'll definitely chime in a bit more with the I've been forecasting here for 40 years. Here's what the model says. I've got a hunch. I've got a feeling in terms of what's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, you get that little bit of um, a human aspect to it rather than just being, you know, bare bones. Some computer says this is what's going to happen. Yeah, and you'll... You'll see it when you look at hurricane forecasting or if you do hop on something like Windy and actually watch it, a timeline, because they'll forecast out to, I think it's nine days out. Yeah, which is, as far as I'm concerned, that's ridiculous. And a lot of times you'll see, especially when you were in the Southern Ocean or when it's hurricane season, you can tell when the modeling starts to fail at that like seven to eight day mark. All of a sudden you see kind of fronts and patterns that just, don't even look normal right right you're like right. wait that's not what the weather does like this this front doesn't all of a sudden become a straight perfect line there with you know zero miles an hour and then all of a sudden 80 which can happen but not for hundreds of miles going north to south and well <laughs> and you know i mean you speak of the being in the southern ocean and i i don't know for a fact so i'm i'm taking a, a guess here but even on any of those sites, you know, the Southern Ocean doesn't have anywhere near the amount of weather buoys in it that, say, the North Atlantic does. Yeah. So the I, I would think the accuracy of the forecast, or at least the information that's being compiled to produce that forecast, at least in the Southern Ocean, is probably way less than places where there's busy fishing and shipping and, and pleasure craft. Yeah, I mean, there's no... There's no- investment incentive behind building it because other than crazy people on small sailboats who else goes down there exactly race boats basically that's, yeah that's about it well there are a few fishing boats but i you know from cape horn or from the cape of good hope to cape horn which is four and a half months i only saw four boats so yeah it's definitely well, an empty place and as as we found when you were down there comparing what I would report as your forecasted weather to what you were actually experiencing <coughs> found me. in general that it was a good, probably about on average, we think about like 10 knots less in the forecast compared to what you were seeing. Cause most of the time you'd come back and be like, no, that was a lot more than what they were saying it was going to be. Yeah. I, I, what I would think is on, on windy, you can switch between seeing what the average wind speed is or seeing what the gusts are. And I think, when I was in the Southern Ocean, it seemed more more like the gusts. So yeah, it was it was basically I'd say ten to fifteen knots, typically more. Or in the other realm, when it said I was supposed to be in ten knots of breeze, sometimes I would have absolute zero, and I'd just be wallowing in misery and yeah, horrific which, conditions, just rolling. I'll tell you what, that that was the biggest surprise for me when you were going through it, because all you ever hear about the Southern Ocean are the huge gales and all that kind of thing, and it never occurred to me to think of, well, 
in between those gales, you're going to have some calms. But yeah. with all the leftover sea state. Exactly. Well, and it, you know, because they're typically all the same, I, I, they're not like, well, some of them are cyclonic storms, but typically it's sort of a front line. So initially you're getting hit by north or northwesterly winds, and then it does this abrupt shift to west and then southwest. But it typically builds up the waves from, you know, three different directions. I mean, I know it just in in the book there's so many times i keep talking about you know dealing with waves from the the north the west and the south and they're all sort of coming together in this this oh, podge pattern and you know you you're basically just trying to deal with whatever's the biggest and predominantly down there the southwest swell is sort of omnipresent it's always there and it just kind of goes up and down with the systems but it's it was some of the some of the waves from the north were I found to be more dangerous than others, depending on how hard it blew initially. But those would be the ones that would slap you on the side after the shift had already gone through. And now, I mean, I have videos of me basically surfing waves, and I'm headed due east, and then I have these big ones coming in from the north, and just rocking the boat crazy. Well, and that's it, I mean. All of my open ocean experience is all mid-Atlantic. Uh, so same thing, hearing about the, the confused seas, which is like, what? You're, you're in the most wide-open stretch of water on the planet. And it's like, wait, you've got wave action coming from everywhere? Because I just think of normal... You know, well, trade normal, wind sailing. Yeah, yeah, or even once you get up towards Bermuda and you're out of the trades and stuff like that, still, generally, it's... This is the swell. There's the direction it's going. But seeing those those pyramid shaped mm -hmm. waves in some of your videos, when you're th a thousand miles from anything, is just like whoa. Okay, I had no idea. Well, and that was that thing. Knox Johnson used to call it boxing the compass, and I know he dealt with it really a lot in in the deep South Pacific, headed to Cape Horn, and then also. When he rounded the horn and was in the variables headed north in the Atlantic, he was just going crazy watching the winds just basically spin around the compass, always building it up. Because his boat, Suheili and Mighty Sparrow, are, are almost identical, except his teak and mine is, is fiberglass. But, you know, he what happens in those situations with our boats is you hobby horse. And so if you've got chop that you're trying to plow into – your your the bow is so rounded on those boats and so buoyant that every time a wave hits it it just pops the bow up so keeping that full steam ahead in those sort of conditions is almost impossible you have to just be powering through and either way it's going to be terribly uncomfortable oh yeah i mean i never saw any any heavy duty conditions on the the one trip that you and i did from maine down to gloucester but no that was that was light wind. We were lucky, though. I mean, the day before, it was blowing 25, 30 or something. Yeah. And it eased that night. Because if I remember, we got back to the boat, and the boat was, like, bouncing on the dock. And yeah. then oh, as yeah. we took off the next day, it just sort of eased and eased. And then I think we motored for a little bit, but then the wind picked up in the night, and we cruised. Yeah. Overall, not bad. But I was just surprised by, yeah, the motion of the boat. You get any sort of, any sort of decent kind of chop or sea state and without some wind in the sails yeah she's all over the place yeah oh yeah no absolutely and i that's always one of my big things when you get these big storms that sort of roll off the east coast i'm headed south 
you know, I get hit with this north wind at first, and then things switch around, and all of a sudden I'm steaming into, you know, waves that are building from the south or southwest. Oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> it's this jarring sort of motion, again, because it has that bow that, you know, it'll push a lot of water out of the way, but it 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 jostles that boat, something fierce. Well, getting getting back to the weather forecasting stuff, so obviously I can't, when I'm on the boat, go and, and just turn on the Internet and look at Windy. So what I use are the grib files. I'm downloading those onto, I think the program is ZGrib, which is just another basically platform to be able to look at, you know, the wind arrows and give me that forecast. That's identical pretty much to what you would be seeing on Windy, just in a different format, correct? Yeah, so the, the grib files are just a, a, a special format to make them very uh, small data-wise. Uh, so they're pretty much specifically for boats that are out there. So you can do burst transmissions through uh, your sat phone. It just keeps your data usage down. Yeah, um, it's, so it's, it's just typically bones forecast. two minutes. If, if the sat phone stays connected and I can get through it on the computer really quickly. Again, my, my system is pretty messed up because both the operating systems for these computers that I have on the boat don't, or are not supposed to work with that Iridium sad phone. So, which I still don't know how you managed to get that to work. Yeah, I, I don't know either. Iridium on the phone telling me no, it doesn't work. I've had to time. redo it on that computer as well. So I've done it twice. It, it it does work, but what I find happens, it's all connected, everything's hunky dory. But when I go into ZGrib and try and download, it gives me an error for about ten or twenty tries, and then it'll click through and I'm good to go. And I've, I've tested, you know, believe me, I've tested a million different ways. I've just logged in, let it stay connected for five, 10 minutes and then try still. It's like, it's like there's something in the computer that just needs to be in the perfect order for when I hit enter. And then all of a sudden it'll just zoop. Is that every single time? Every yeah. single time. Yeah. Oh, you very told me that. Good Lord, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, but I was so used to it that when I set off to go up through the Northwest Passage and stuff, I didn't think twice. I was like, yeah, it works. I know I got my system down. What I should have done, that was the only system I didn't have a backup for. And that's where I, I if I would have had the money and I had the time, I probably would have ordered uh, an Iridium Go. But I'd never used those before. And I was just so short on time. I mean, I. That was, it was ridiculous what I was trying to set out for in, in such a little time. But anyway, I, yeah, so when I'm out at sea, I'm downloading the grid files. And I'll typically download for six days just because it, it shortens how much download time I need. But it also, I, I don't trust a forecast after five days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'll get my little extra six day in just so I can sort of guesstimate. But it, I... I never try and base anything of directions or what I'm going to do. Cause they, you know, my, my best example of a changing forecast was heading from Maine down to Buford two years ago and was about to cross the Gulf stream. Perfect dead flat conditions would have just motored straight across. And that was maybe 30 miles South of Cape Hatteras and decided to go further South and cross oh, at a, that, yeah. a little better spot so that, you know, as I'm crossing, because the, the forecast was just like little to no wind. 
So we figured if I cross further south, then I'm headed right in for, for Buford. And I think within 24 hours, the forecast changed from like zero to five knots of wind to I think it was like 50. Yeah, I remember there was that, and we're racing to beat that big front coming out of the northwest too. Well, yeah, that was the thing is so this little system piped up and it was only a day out. But behind that was an even bigger system, like a full-blown raging gale. And I'm basically in one of the worst spots you can be, which in is... the Gulf Stream by Hatteras. By Hatteras, yeah. And I, I remember as soon as I saw that forecast update, I took off and started saying, because it was wind, there was no wind. I motored, 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 got about halfway across the Gulf Stream. So I'm midstream, and that's when all of a sudden the... The winds came out of where they come. They came out of the, I want to say the south first, and then roared to life from the west. And that was when the winds piped up from maybe 25 to about 40, 45. And then the microbursts happened, which I still, yeah, I'll, I'll never, never forget that. I can only guess, but I, I would think the winds in those gusts were up in the 70 knot range. They, I was bare poles and I was getting healed over, you know, 60 degrees. So I've been, there wasn't anything I could do at that point. I've been in microbursts on land. They, they're short of a random container floating at water level. A microburst at sea is like the scariest thing. That's terrifying. Life. I still remember seeing those, those images of that Chicago to Mac race. I don't know, a decade ago where they got hit by a microburst, 100 knot winds. Oh, yeah. Basically, I, I just remember a sequence of shots from a video clip in the middle of the night, and the only ones you could see are the frames where the lightning was going, but you could see the jib sail completely shredded and just the boats healed over. It's a oh, worst-case scenario by any means. But that's that's what you know happened to me. Luckily, you know, I the system wasn't prolonged so basically once the winds started as the system moved to the east the winds came around to the north i was still in the middle of the gulf stream but the winds became so strong and the waves became big enough that i had to run with the storm so i just ran with it and stayed in the gulf stream and surfed waves all night i think i was just under a storm jib alone for a long time and then the next day was able to put up the main and stuff. That one, that was like a sort of lesson learned. Like if the Gulf Stream gives you the opportunity to cross it without any troubles and in great weather, take it. Don't, don't, don't wait and be like, oh, well, I'm going to go a little further, 100 miles south, and then I'm going to cut across and da-da-da. No. Take advantage because, you know, I would have basically gotten across it that day in light winds or with no wind. And then I would have been on the inside so that when that forecast came up, I could have pulled in to Hatteras or, you know, I could have pulled into Charleston or something like that and avoided that whole situation. But yeah, I lesson mean that, learned. I do remember that one because there was a lot of back and forth between you and I trying to figure out when was a good time to cross, how far to go. And I remember yeah, looking at the forecast as it originally was, it was the going south was the what seemed to be the better idea at the time. Yeah. I think I think I even talked to Porter a little bit about that when it was getting weird enough that I was reaching out to be like, okay. Well and let's, that, all, let's all figure out what's the what's the smart move here. That's the thing. That sort of brings us back to the initial point of, you know, those things just being computer models 
every once in a while they're going to be completely wrong. And all of a sudden you're going to be left in, in either miserable conditions or, you know, basically you're not going to get what you thought. And it can happen even 24 hours out, let alone, you know, five days or like we're talking about nine days out. I mean, nine days, I think on my Z-Grib, I can, I can download 10 days of weather. That's kind of what the yeah, point. Yeah, it point? isn't. Yeah, it's, you know. I, I would say, honestly, the only time it's really helpful to do that 10-day is probably if you just want to have a general idea of where the lows are in the Southern Ocean. If you want to see, you know, if some big monster might be coming up, at least that'll give you an idea. But yeah. again, it's nothing that you can actually set in stone by any means. You can't trust yeah. it. So, I would think maybe one other place would be if you're uh, if you're in the trades because you've already got somewhat of a stable condition set up with a yeah. consistent breeze. So it, a little bit more stable, but anywhere near any sort of land sea interface or something as tumultuous as the Southern Ocean with the exception of just a basic idea of a low, actually forecasting conditions in a location that far out, just there's, there's right. no guarantees. Who needs a forecast in the trades? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you right now. About 82 to 85, blowing between 18 and 22. Oh, I don't know. We're getting close to the Christmas winds right now. Sometimes yeah. we see 50 knots in the Bahamas. You never know. No, actually, I, I have a funny story. I was in Dominica once and went out to this boat to pick up a friend of mine and chatting with, you know, the the captain. And it was an old catamaran sort of thing. It was a bunch of young people, probably in their mid-20s. And, you know, most of them were all beginners. But the guy who owned the boat, he he sort of knew what he was doing until – I was asking him, he, they were taking off the next day, and I said, oh, yeah, what's, what's the weather going to be for your trip? They were, I think, sailing down from Dominica to maybe Venezuela or something. And he said, oh, I don't, I don't check the forecast. I don't, you know, I just deal with it when I'm out there. Yeah, and all I, all I thought to myself is, okay, all right, you're, uh, you're responsible for the lives of these people, and you don't want to do the simplest thing in the world and just check what the weather forecast is going to be? Well, that's hmm. like the people that have the, the ironclad date of departure. And it's like, we're, the plan is we're going to leave Friday, uh, November the 12th. Oh, gosh, no. You, you can't, can't you well, a, Yeah, it's Friday, but barring the, uh, that, that kind of You let the thought. weather dictate. Yes. You never have a say. It's never we have to leave that day. Yeah. It's weather permitting. That's our hopeful departure date. That's I think as far as you go. Sometimes that that is the result of you know paying crew to come and and help you on a trip or people's flights and all that sort of stuff. There's nothing worse than you know flying to a boat. You're supposed to leave, say you know close to the next day, or and some big system rolls in. And all of a sudden, you've got five days sitting in some place. And but I, you know on those typically, if if that's the situation, and we have to push back the departure the delivery crew is typically paid i guess oh, yeah. it, it depends on the boat though so I, you're you're a captive audience so i better be getting paid for my time but i put there you to was, work though yeah, well, well yeah i'll or scrub out I'll that bilge sure. bud i'd rather do something other than that but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll clean or fix whatever but i when when i was on red sky but before i actually started working on it they got trapped in bermuda for i think nine days one time by weather which, if oh, wow. you're paid crew, 
that's kind of a nice gig. That that was the Swan 100. So if you're stuck for just over a week living on a really nice boat and getting paid to do it. Right, right. Yeah, that's yeah, not so I'll bad. take it. But I had that actually backfired on me one time. We had stopped in Bermuda on the way up to Maine, and it was supposed to be like four days. And I think like two hours or so later, uh, the captain grabs everybody and it's like, well, we've got a window, but we got to leave right now. And so it went from having four days in Bermuda to we're leaving in the next half an right. hour once we yeah. get what we need. It's funny how that stuff happens. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, and that was actually when the AC, uh, I think it was the AC40 World or AC50 World Series boats were practicing in Bermuda because the cup was in Bermuda that time around. Yeah. And so we could look out and see, uh, I think, Oracle and I forget what other team was doing practice runs out there. So we could look out and see those just foiling cats just tearing along. Wow. Well, that that would have been cool. Oh, yeah. We got one. Of, when we fueled up, the wind had us pinned onto the dock, and we were right next to um, Team Oracle's base, and they were headed out for some test sails, and we flagged down one of the ribs. Oh, the, yeah. The they they the towed our stern off, off so we could uh, thrust the bow off at the same because otherwise we couldn't get out. It was just a raw, concrete, like, freighter dock. Yeah. Oh, that's where the, the little cruise ships pull up. Yeah. Right. So we weren't getting off that dock without help. Well, it's just a fun team to get help from. And that's, dude, that's honestly, it's, it's one of the smartest things, but one of the most common mistakes people, people make where you don't ask for help and all of a sudden you get yourself into a serious pinch trying to maneuver or something like that. When, yeah, if you, if you just say, Hey, we could just use a little dinghy, make this super easy rather than, Oh, I got this. Oh yeah. But well, that was one of the, we all the- fall victim to that one every once in a while. One of the better lessons that you actually taught me back in the day, uh, when I first started driving bigger boats, not, not anything huge, but like we had the 40-foot the snorkel boat, the Ponce, down at the bitter end. And its parking spot was usually on the downwind side of the dock, and it did not maneuver very well. And when you told me one time, you're like, well, at the end of a snorkel trip, just if you need to, park it where it's easy. We can always move the boat, but you've got customers on board. Just park in an easy spot unload and if we need to we'll move the boat later instead of seeing people just try and try and try and usually fail at putting it into this very specific spot well we were lucky though i mean you know we we sort of had the the run of that place as far as you know we didn't have to call people and say hey can we park here it was sort of it was our it was our backyard but yeah it is that is true it 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 makes makes your life so much better. And I, I remember telling that not just to you, but to a lot of people when I'd see them struggling, I'd say, hey, we'll put it over there. No big deal. So always make it easier on yourself. Good good top tip right there. Well, I, I think one of the big things with, with Windy that I really like is the Gulfstream, all the current data and stuff that they have. Because, you know, if you've never looked at at a site that shows you what the world's ocean currents are doing, it it was mind-blowing the first time I saw it. I mean, I really realized the strength of, like, the Gulf Stream or the Agullis Current near Africa of just how much water's moving and how fast it's actually moving because there's nothing more disruptive to the ocean than wind going against current. I mean, the waves just, they go completely different than than normal. And to be able to get that, information and that's what i was relying on you for most of the time you know when i think most notably when we were when i was headed around the cape of good hope i think i was down at 40 degrees or 
somewhere around there, just over into the Roaring Forties. But I think you guys told me I needed to go further south oh, to yeah. really get out of the dangerous zone from that current. Oh yeah, well that's the the Agulis. It comes down, and it's a it's of course a, a shipping graveyard area and stuff like that. It's kind of the Gulf Stream off of the South Square of South Africa. Waves live there, <laughs> but it has a return current, which you got lucky. It happened to be when you hit it, it was running straight west to east, and just magic carpet. Along. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, I've looked at it uh, after the fact, and a lot of times it'll twist and turn and have eddies and stuff. But you hit it when it was just a a freeway of water. Just pushing you east and getting you right past South Africa. Oh yeah, no, but, it was it was much appreciated too because that is not a fun place to sail. Just constantly looking over your shoulder at Antarctica, thinking, "Oh man, what's coming next? What's coming next?" I mean, when I entered, it was right when the Volvo boats took off, and they took off right in front of a really big low pressure system where I, I think the winds at the center were in the seventies. This is essentially a hurricane, and oh man, I I just caught the trailing edge of that one. But geez, Louise, well, not life a fun is, place. Life is made a little bit easier when you can outrun all the systems. That's yeah, no, gives that's you true. a little when bit you, more flexibility when you want that front edge of a storm. You know, I, I I would think ideally for any of those go fast boats trying to go around the world when they're in the Southern Ocean, they pretty much just want to be in front of a low pressure system so they get strong north winds so they can power reach along or broad reach and just go 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 and stay right in front of it without it overtaking them you know i i was sort of doing the old school thing where the whole system i'd I'd go through the entire system i'd be able to see it from one side to the other as it rolled over me yeah Uh, and i i think i've heard some where they'll actually chase the lows as well but that's that's one you know i i picked up a lot of my weather forecasting during your trip you know i i had played with grib files during deliveries and looked at windy for fun and actually most of it started for me when we would look at uh, the hurricanes the hurricanes yeah, down, down at the bitter end. end try and see if we could pick up which ones they would flag before they'd actually flag them through noah well and we used how did, there was one that we were always looking at there was crown weather but that's then a great one there was some other one that had like every single model it's like spaghetti weather or something like that. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. I do, I've seen the ones before where they have the, and that's, you talk about different models. You, when you get to the heart of hurricane season, they'll show you maps that have all the different models and their tracks. Usually they agree right. in the most part, but then you'll see these outliers that go just shooting off in random directions, which do sometimes actually end up being the path the hurricanes will take. I think well, that was. Yeah, I mean, didn't they, in. Was it the 98 Sydney to Hobart where they were basing everything? And I, I, I don't know if this is true. My memory fails me, but I think they were basing everything off of the European system maybe. And the American system was talking about that low definitely getting worse. And I believe that was the case where it actually got a lot worse. So there, there is definitely a difference when you look at the European models versus uh, the Noah ones. Yeah, I think was that ninety eight. Is that ninety eight or ninety six? Because that that's when we were in. No, it was ninety eight. Was yeah. that ninety eight? Is that the one? That was we... that was the bad one. Yeah, we were down there. Okay, cause not I, for well, the race. We were just there on a little family vacation. There was one that we were we were in London at the time, and that was. 
one of the first times I ever realized how much more publicity it'll get. That was like same. sailing events to get overseas. Yeah. Yeah, where you're sitting there and it's just all over the news, having just left America and it's you didn't even know any of it was happening, kind of a thing. I know, I know, it's a shame. I I yeah. wish um, I wish it was a, a more popular sort of thing, but hey, whatever. What can yeah. you do? So oh, yeah. we've got we've got we've talked about Windy. It's absolutely just amazing, and there's there's so many different things that you can do with that site as far as putting in waypoints and distances. I, you know. The list goes on and on. I mean, it has so many different layering things that you can show. It's it's great, but it's not something that I can use on the boat. The yeah. other one was, and I it, it was probably the first first offshore weather that I ever saw, and that was passage weather, which I haven't used in years and years. But I do remember that one gave you the Gulf Stream, and it gave you you know you get a seven day forecast on that and download it and be able to just pull it up on your, I don't know if you, I don't, I don't know how I'm trying to say, I don't know how much, how much data it is compared to like the grid files on Z grip, but it's, it's, you know, it was a decent, a decent little site for sure. Gave you some pretty good forecasts. It's going to be a a higher data usage. The one problem I found, because when, when you were doing your trip, the initial one around the world, I kept a copy of Zgrib on my computer, and so even though I was using Windy for most of my analytics, I could then switch over just to get an idea as to what you were actually looking at. Right. So I could see the discrepancies. Instead of sending you information only to hear back, well, this is what I'm looking at, I could see just what you were looking at as well. Uh, but Passage Weather, I, I used it for a little while. It looks like a, a great site and interface, but a lot of the features were behind a paywall, and kind of the, the shorter free version it it just wasn't the best interface for my uses right because right. i had so many other resources i could dig into um, that i didn't need to go specifically with that but it does carry a lot of information with it yeah i i definitely agree that the eye candy factors is not so much there like windy but yeah it's just another outlet because you know if i'm if i'm gonna sail from from buford up to maine or gloucester or something I'm going to look at, for, for probably the, the five days leading up to the trip, I'm going to look at Windy. I'm going to download the grib files, and I'll probably, thinking about it now, I'll probably check passage weather as well, just, just to be in case. And I, I just sort of watch it, and just to get an idea of the feel. You know, I don't want to sit down the day before I leave and start looking at the weather. I sort of want to know what's just left and what's come, because I've always felt... Like you get a big system that rolls off the coast and then you're supposed to leave a few days later. It's sort of like, yeah, all right, this is good. The big one's already out. I can just cruise up there. It should be calm for a couple of, you know, a week before the next system. Cause I, you know, the East coast is just a, a gale factory. They just keep pumping off from all the way down to Charleston. It's just boom, boom, boom. And I don't know. I mean, if I was, if I was trying to, help somebody if somebody called me and said yeah i'm gonna set sail from buford i'm going up to cape cod you know what what do you think about the weather that's it i mean straight to windy check it out see what's going on then do the the grib files and make sure it all lines up but i'm also what what sort of things do you look at when if i if i called you up and said i want to sail from here to there what what would you what would be your first thing 
Uh, I mean, if you're talking, yeah, South Carolina up to Maine, um, I think first thing would be, yeah, just take a quick look at the, the week-long outlook on Windy just to get an idea of any giant lows or anything like that that seem to be building. Um, you know, because that's the kind of thing, if, if it's a really, okay, if, it, if it's hurricane season, you look to see if there's any waves coming across. Same thing outside of hurricane season, you'll look to see if anything really big is coming out of the Northwest, like any any big storms coming off of the Canadian yeah. Plains. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of times they'll get knocked down, but sometimes they won't, and they'll continue all the way out to the East Coast and just batter the oh, East Coast. And once I'm, they get offshore, they just turn even worse. They come, yeah, right off the right out of Canada, and they'll sort of come down in a southeasterly direction, go sometimes – over or under the Great Lakes, and then as soon as they're coming off of around Cape Hatteras, typically they're exploding into this this monster gale, and and that's exactly where you don't want to be because again, they're typically you're you're typically going to see as that system as the low pressure moves off, you're going to see winds from the south and then from the west, and then you're going to get pummeled from the north. Yeah, and you also you have uh, two. Uh, sometimes filters, sometimes amplifiers. Where if, if you see something nasty on its way down all the way up in the in the Canadian Plains, when they hit the Great Lakes, sometimes Great Lakes will knock them down. A lot of times, Great Lakes will pump them back up. You know, you get that energy out of the water. Right. And then you've got stage two, which is the Adirondacks, which sometimes the mountains will suck a lot of energy out of them. But if they're powerful enough and they push right through it then you know it's going to be even worse than what it seems to be. And so you've got these little check marks of, well, is it going to dissolve here? Nope. Okay, it's still going. Let's see what the mountains do to it. And if it if it looks like it's keeping its strength up, it's like, okay, when that hits the ocean, it's going to turn really, really Right, nasty. right. Well, and I, I've watched a lot of systems come and sort of form in the Gulf and then work their way over Florida. And as soon as they get back on the ocean, then they explode. I don't know whether it's just from the the hot water in the Gulf Stream or what, but it, that typically turns into a system that that just has started much further south. So no matter where you are on the East Coast, that one's typically going to smash you. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it is. It's kind of one of those things. You're there's about three or four different spots I'm sort of looking at, and I just kind of hope and hope and hope. But you know, for my trips, I stay way offshore you know when i'll when i typically sail from maine down south i'm crossing the gulf stream twice so because i'm two three hundred miles offshore and and i mean i i've been that one trip i got hit by that gale and went hove two for three days and ended up past bermuda and i was on my way to charleston and so ended up coming down and then got smacked by not not a full gale or anything, but I got smacked by another system, the second one that came off. And that was 14 days to get down there. Oh, yeah. Well, and if you're, if you're headed south, say, from uh, Massachusetts, Maine, anything like that, if you're going to, say, the Chesapeake or any further south than the, south than the Chesapeake, yeah. Uh, yeah, my thought would always be just get past the Gulf Stream. A, you get warmer water, so that's a little more pleasant, and B, just have that sea room. Yeah, 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 just get away from it. Yeah, if if you want to stay that close to land, then stay out of the way of freighters and fishing boats and take the intercoastal. Right, true, yeah. true. If if you want to be out open ocean, 
get yourself some room. So yeah, when you do have something that happens, you know, God forbid, but sometimes things occur, as we all know, it's nice to be like, well, I can just stop, drift wherever I need to drift, and just cope with whatever is happening on the boat or with weather, and just be like, okay, I don't have to worry about, I have to get out of here in a day or else there's land there. Right, right. Like, well, no, and that, yeah. I can drift around if need be. For me, that's always always been the the biggest thing is I, I just like to be out as far away from land as possible so I, I have all the sea room and I can sort of deal with it. But at the same time, I've read A Storm Too Soon about a million times, and that, that seemed to be about the most horrific Gulf Stream. Well, they weren't even technically in the Gulf Stream. They were just in an eddy, but they were in 80-foot waves and – which one was that? Their was that the Mistral? and everything. No, that was the Sean C. Amore, I believe, was the, the name of the boat. There were three guys on it, and they they headed across, I believe it was in May of 2007, maybe? <laughs> I don't know my memory. I've read it so many times that I can't remember. But in any event, they there was a huge system that, that exploded. Um basically a bomb came at them and and they were yeah i mean they had to be rescued there's actually youtube videos from the coast guard where you can see them in this uh life raft that the waves are it's just impossible to even think yeah, about geez. what it was like in that situation so well it's like uh You'd mentioned the the catamaran where they were going out and and the captain didn't bother to check weather and you just see what happens and i remember reading a book uh, I forget which hurricane it was, but it was a guy that was in St. Martin on the French side, and he had just bought a, an old used mini transat boat. So 22-foot, but open ocean. Oh, are you boat. talking at the Mercy of the Sea? Yep, that's the one. By John Kretschmer. Yeah. Wow. Another hero of mine. I think he's, to, I think he's probably one of the, one of the greatest um, sailors, American sailors, there are right now. He's just... The, the trips that he does, people pay to just get on his boat and go and get into rough weather. So he's, you know, I'll, I'll go out and risk my own tail in that sort of stuff. But he he's confident enough in his abilities. He has so, so much seamanship running through his veins <laughs> that he literally, he just goes, he'll do, you know, I've crossed the Atlantic in February, but he'll do it, you know, as the captain and just, oh man, it's, it's pretty incredible. But yeah, the, the guy left, he bought the mini trans out with the autopilot not working. He didn't have a forecast. Well, he couldn't speak French. Couldn't speak French. French side. Well, no, so he, he left he from like, Guadeloupe. The... Oh, it was Guadeloupe? Yeah. I and he was oh, headed okay. to Tortola and that's when, um, Oh, I can't remember which hurricane it was. Ah, it was the wrong I. way hurricane. I that wasn't. It came from from the Gulf and it it came back over. Oh, oh I'm yeah. I, I'm so upset. I can't remember. It the wasn't name of Mitch. It. Mitch was the one that was east to west, but then dove towards Honduras. Yeah, all Kretschmer the went through that as oh, well. Geez. He's he's been stuck in I think three hurricanes or tropical storms. He's Ooh, he's no just thing. yeah, and he he's he'll be the first to admit he's like I was just. I didn't know what I was doing back then. And, you know, I have plenty of those sort of stories. But Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, again, yeah, don't check that forecast and don't see it. But that, that, that hurricane was pretty messed up because it was, it was going the wrong direction. It was already in November. Everybody was sort of like hurricane season's over and all that. So. Yeah. 
Who knows? Who knows? Well, are there any other sort of weather forecasting things that, that you use at all? Um, I mean, those are the main ones. Uh, you know, you get into regional kind of stuff, which, uh, like with your, your latest trip, uh, the, the defunct Northwest Passage trip that then was, you were just waiting for a window to come back. And then that got into, we're in hurricane season. Um, and then it really becomes how deep you want to dive into it. So for hurricane season, beyond looking at the systems, then you start actually looking at satellite imagery of northern Africa and see if you can spot waves getting ready to come off. But then you're also looking at uh, you know wind shear, which is upper-level winds that cut the tops off of storms to knock them down. And well, how and dust is in NOAA the does a pretty good job of, you know, when you actually read their weather synopsis, of because they'll isolate you know something like a tropical wave and they'll just tell you all about it but again i would say the big difference between that and like windy is that windy is showing you this beautiful imagery of what's going on noah's actually just spelling it out for you and saying you know this is not conducive for development of this storm. The upper level wind shear should be cutting into it. The Sahara dust is coming down. And that's sort of some of the stuff that, at least in my experience on Windy, you don't really get. And it may yeah, just you know. be operator error because I don't know how to access the Sahara dust you know, layer. I don't, I don't know if they do a dust layer. but I bet that, you they do. They've got so many. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But then also, I, for me, at that point, if you're digging that far into specifics, then I would want something more technical than really, really well done graphics anyway. So like you mentioned uh, Crown Weather earlier, yeah. which is a great hybrid between the two because you can go on there and you go to their Atlantic Tropical page. And what they'll do is they will, they will post all of the um, animated and also static images that NOAA itself will produce. So you get some colorization and gradients to show you what's happening, but also the figures and numbers that they'll use at NOAA. So you can see um, pictures of the Atlantic, but then with uh, colors and figures and things like that to tell you what the dust layer is doing, what it actually looks like, uh, as well as wind shear, um, pressures, temperature. I mean, they run through everything but it's all pulled from places like NOAA and other actual data-based forecasting sites right. just to tell you what the current conditions are so that's a nice middle ground of knowing you're actually looking at solid scientific stuff beyond a well this looks really nice what's the question of accuracy become when well, what do you lose when you make it look really nice yeah yeah true true well let me ask you this so after after my water pump broke in the Indian Ocean you know, oh, the, the goal was basically to try and find rain. And I know that can be pretty difficult. How, how, what were your, what was your technique for going about that and helping me find the, the little pockets of where it's going to actually rain? Well, I will say that, that was, there, there were two or three major moments during that trip. And that one when it came to finding rain, because there were, of course, the times outrunning the cyclones in the Indian Ocean or just trying to dodge them. That was scary because you'd just be sitting there just watching the clock because I, I remember having to text you, uh, there's no real good way out, just go as fast as you can, which is not what you want to have to say. Oh, yeah. No, I remember that really well. That was, that was pretty intense, but 
Oh, made, yeah. it, made it in front. And, you know, everybody will tell you, don't ever try and cross the T when you're crossing the path of a – you never really want to cross the path of a hurricane. You yeah. always want to sort of go behind it. And I was definitely crossing that one, and that's why I got spanked. But Well, those two in the Indian Ocean, when they really made their turn, they somehow managed to just gun right for where you were. So you weren't even crossing it because it didn't even have that path yet. It was just like, I'm going to turn, and now that I have a course, oh, just so happens to be Jerome is right in that course. Zing. <laughs> well, but it wasn't until, you know, Gita. That was the only one. And that one, New Zealand had disrupted its cyclonic energy. It was just a big mess of energy. So it sat on top of me with no wind, big waves. And then then it turned into a pretty massive gale for, for two days or whatever. Well, yeah, and that was one where you talk about storm disruption because I remember looking at the forecasting of that and the forecasts were undecided as well. Everybody was just watching it and saying, will Will New Zealand be enough to knock this beast down? Because it was Category 4, I think, when it hit Fiji. I think so, yeah. And that did such a strange... It. I still have a picture of the, the track of that, and it started going to the east, then it went south, then it went west, then it went south, and then it went directly to my position. Yeah, it was It was not a fun one to watch. Yeah, because <laughs> no, nobody. Sure. Well, had I kept answer. running further south. That was when I... I think that was the first time I broke down into the... The Furious 50s was when I was trying to just get that was that was one of the, the rare occurrences where you're trying to get further and in, deeper into the Southern Ocean to get away from. It's a little warm up here. Weather. I'm going to head south. Yeah, right? <laughs> see if I can see an iceberg. Well, have you ever been do you have any experience with uh, any of the paid meteorologists that do boat weather? Uh, limited. My my only time dealing with those is that when uh, when I was on Red Sky, uh, we had an account with uh, with commanders, and so essentially, the, what we would get because we would also we would download our own grid files and look at that. Uh, but the whole time that we were underway, we would get updates from commanders' weather. Okay. And it, what it really kind of came down to would be a a tailored forecast for you, uh, kind of in the same vein as the the updates that NOAA will send out during hurricane season, where it's like a couple paragraphs let you know what's going on but it's tailored to your boat and your position so they'll add in if there's anything to watch out for or if your plan doesn't look very good uh, i think actually our our rapid departure from bermuda may have been uh, oh, a call there. from them going right. like hey you know you're gonna be stuck for a while or if you get your button gear you go you're down. gonna be good to go well and for for anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about you can basically pay people from you know just a private person who's got a ton of experience and is a meteorologist and and basically they will email you all the information so that you know you don't even have to really keep track of the weather you can just listen to what they're telling you to do you want a self-taught meteorologist right there yeah, i know i i wouldn't pay one because i got you <laughs> now i you know i've never felt the the real need for that just because i've i've always been really interested in the weather um and I, I just don't have any money to be able to do that. I'd rather buy an extra six or a beer for the trip. Well, and I, I could totally see it. I, we've both been on, on delivery trips and stuff like that where I wouldn't have trusted the people in charge to, to really do proper weather forecasting. So uh, for people that don't spend much time offshore or don't really get into the technical aspects of, of forecasting, I think it's a great idea. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, and for, for people who are just getting into boating, you know, first sailboat, just getting out there, that sort of stuff, having having somebody who has a ton of experience being able to get you that sort of information and give you guidance is well worth the price of admission, I would say. Oh, yeah. Same thing as if you're doing your first ever offshore trip, you're going to talk to people about provisioning. You're not just going to go, I think, I think I'll figure this out. It's like you're going to talk to people. So same thing with the weather. Right, right, exactly. Tug on some ears and be like, hey, I, it's my first time out. Because as soon as you tell somebody that, that you're heading offshore in a boat, and it might be your first offshore trip. If they have any experience, they are more than happy to pass it along. Maybe sometimes a bit more than you want them to. But right, right. <laughs> they oh, will, yeah. they, the help is definitely there. Most Bending people that do your offshore, ear, you're like, I, I know. Love, I love telling old war <laughs> stories from being out to sea. I mean, it's just good times. Oh, man. Yeah. No, it is. It's, it's a lot of fun. And I, I do. I, I really enjoy looking at the weather, trying to examine it, do, you know, just really get into it. And, there have been a million times where my weather forecast has disappointed me completely, and there's other times where I'm happy that it was wrong because all of a sudden I find myself in wind when I shouldn't have had any and that sort of stuff. But I, I find it really mostly crucial in those sort of scary areas like the Gulf Stream where you really want to have a very updated weather forecast. You know you're about to cross. You're going to be in good wind, and so it, it makes you that much more confident. I mean, you're, you're always under the threat of getting some sort of little micro system or something like that, but typically those come on fast and they're gone just as fast. It's, it's the big systems that I want to know as much about as possible, especially when I'm in those, those heavy current areas. Oh, yeah. Well, and in, in, in that vein, especially out at sea, being conservative is never a bad thing. You know, I say if, if – the forecast says everything's fine, but you look over your shoulder and it just looks nasty. It's always easier to shake out a reef than to put one in. That's true. So that just is true. It, you know, you shouldn't be in a rush anyway. You you should have a day you'd like to get back, but same thing as a departure date. You can't give a I will be there on the fifteenth. No, you're gonna get there when you get there, weather dictating. There's just no. Not other if option. you push the boat really hard. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> well, uh, we're just past the hour time, so any last thoughts on weather? Anything? Um, yeah, I'll give a, a, just a quick one because uh, we kind of got sidetracked there. Uh, you were talking about the rain, and so essentially you asked me or told me that I had to find you rain when you were in the southern Indian Ocean. And the forecasting and stuff down there, especially coming to, when it when it deals with rain, is pretty much non-existent. It's just very large scale, like maybe. Uh, so the next step from there for me was I started looking at uh, satellite imagery. And so it was just actually looking at cloud cover and looking for any defined cloud lines. There would be any size of any kind of front that wasn't showing up in the forecast and then telling you a, a time window. Uh, you know, Make sure you're awake between 2 and 4 at night. Right. Looks like you might get a little line of rain. And that's kind of as far as it went with that, because there's not much else you can do with it. Well, those and those coincided with the major shift from northwest to southwest in those systems, in those low-pressure systems. Yeah, and I remember telling you a couple of times, like, well, there's a system coming, but you may pick up the rain before it really gets nasty. And so it was, it was more a, 
an alarm clock for you. Yeah, of yeah. Like, it looks like this. Don't sleep through it. Be awake for this portion. Oh. You might get something. <laughs> Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as that wind starts shifting, and oh, oh man, it, it definitely wakes you up. Well, thank you, Adam, for, for coming on the podcast. You know, we, we may end up doing a few more of these just if we come up with some more subjects and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I definitely wanted to give you a chance to kind of lend lend a little of your weather experience because, like I said, I mean, you got me around the world in one piece. I only, you know, had to deal with three cyclones and <laughs> many gales, but that's Over the southern like ocean. Over, like, 27,000 so. miles. I think that's a good, uh, that's a good scorecard. That's right, yeah. No, So can't thank you enough for that. And... Yeah, like we say, we recommend Windy for sure, and um, downloading those grid files, that, that'll give you a lot of great information and uh, help you on your way. For anybody that's looking for any information about the Sailing Into Oblivion, you can order the book on Amazon. That's my little plug right there. I have no sponsors, none of that sort of stuff, but uh, I do have a book, and hopefully, fingers crossed, it will be out as an audiobook within the next few weeks. So it's already been submitted. We just got to see if my voice is appropriate for, uh, for that platform. So we shall see. Adam, have a good one. Sail safe.